Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Molly Bloom, who is an inspirational keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and best-selling author of Molly's Game. She's best known for her memoir, Molly's Game, which was adapted into an award-winning film of the same name by Aaron Sorkin. Bloom's memoir chronicles her journey from college student to L.A. waitress to building and operating the largest and most notorious private poker game in the world. Her games featured hundreds of millions of dollars and players like Leonardo DiCaprio, Tobey Maguire, A-Rod, and Ben Affleck. Bloom began her career as a world-class skier. While training as a preteen, she was diagnosed with severe scoliosis and had to undergo surgery that the doctors said would end her athletic career. A year later, she fully recovered. She was back on the slopes. She later then joined the U.S. ski team and at 21 years old was ranked number three in North America in moguls. But her Olympic dreams would go unrealized as she left the team to pursue other projects. This led her to what she thought would be a year sabbatical in L.A. Bloom was finishing her degree in political science from the University of Colorado Boulder and was in the process of applying to top-tier law schools when her assistant job turned her into an accidental entrepreneur, running one of the most exclusive high-stakes underground poker games in the world, pulling in as much as $4 million per year. What happened next is where her story truly begins. The film Molly's Game, written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, stars Jessica Chastain, Idris Elba, Kevin Costner, Michael Cera, Brian D.R.C. James, and Chris D. O'Dowd. Bloom has appeared on num- numerous shows and in media outlets such as Ellen, Vice, The Los Angeles Times, NPR, Vulture, and has been asked to speak at Fortune's Most Powerful Women for countries like BlackRock Financial, Sirius XM Radio, and delivered the 2018 commencement speech at Colorado State University. In today's episode, you're all going to enjoy this. We talk about how Molly has been able to remain sober for the past four years. We talk about how she's overcome her back injury, her relationship with her father, uh, freezing her eggs and, and what that taught her about taking care of herself. And we even get into her sleep hygiene. And one of the most critical things we talk about is how she manages her sobriety. That, that's, we spend so much time on that because we all know getting from A to B is challenging. But once we get to B, what do we do when we get there? How do we maintain? What, what's involved? She really goes into her practice of meditation. Uh, there are questions that she asks herself every day. Uh, there's a daily inventory that Molly takes to check in with herself and make sure that she is on track. Uh, And obviously, you know, even though you're four years sober, and for those of you listening out there who are either struggling with sobriety or some type of chronic pain, Molly's journey is not over. It's not over. And she continues to share with us in a very beautiful way how she is dealing with the pain management and also how she's maintaining her sobriety so sit back relax and enjoy this episode with molly bloom molly bloom i i want to start this episode off 
by congratulating you on your four years of sobriety. Uh, please share with me, one, how did you celebrate four years of sobriety? And two, what do you feel like got you through the, this four years? Because I'm sure that couldn't have been easy for you. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Um, it is definitely something that uh, I hold as a huge accomplishment. And anybody who walks this path, uh, you know, I, I give you a shout out because it's, it's not an easy change to make. Um, you know, it's, it's COVID time. So I celebrated my four years uh, on a Zoom meeting. Um, and I was with, my husband gave me a chip so, cause he's in, he's in recovery too. So it was a very COVID sober birthday, but it was all good, you know? Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, something that's really important to me and I, I really care about expressing is the face of addiction can be any face, you know, it's, it, it's not, um, that, that like, it doesn't just occur when people are, uh, you know, sort of like homeless in the gutter, like it happens to everyone. Um, it, it, it's an, it, it, you know, it, it happens to highly functioning people. It happens to people who have insane willpower and discipline. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important to put, to normalize the face of alcoholism and addiction. And to answer your question, um, I had grappled with it my whole life, but sort of thought that because I wasn't in those places that we see generally uh, referred to when we're when we're when we talk about extreme alcoholism and addiction, that I didn't I didn't fit in that group, and it was just a matter of like it was like dieting, right? Like I just have to do these things in moderation, and and I couldn't. I just I simply couldn't. I had lost the power of choice over substances. And, um, I, I no longer, um, had agency in that category. And so I had to ask for help, you know, I had to do the deal. Um, and it was right before the, it was eight months before the movie came out. So there was a ton of trepidation of like, what if this story gets out and all these people have, you know, put their butt on the line to get this movie out there. And, and I'm still struggling with this stuff, you know, like it's not the happy ending yet. And, and I was, I was really worried that going to rehab again um, and that kind of throwing in the towel, surrendering again in this way would have these negative ramifications, but man, I just, I couldn't do it anymore, you know? And um, I went and I, I did re, you know, I went through 28 days and I did I started doing the things they told me to do like meditation and 90 meetings in 90 days. And, you know, by the time I hit those red carpets, I was a different person inside. Yeah. You mentioned rehab again. How many times <laughs> did you go and what was different about the last time that you went? So I went in 2011. Um, that was when my, my life first started the, a slow burn of, of destruction. <laughs> <You know? laughs> that was when the reckoning of my bad decisions and my dysfunctions, you know, the wrecking ball started and I had, uh, you know, the, the feds seized my assets. So I had no more money. I, none, 
And, you know, I didn't even have cash, which that was a cash business, but I was assaulted by a, a mobster who took all the cash. I had. So it was, it was very bleak um, in terms of the options I had. Um, and I, I went to rehab. Uh, I was out of control, totally out of control. And I went to rehab thinking I just needed to, to hit the reset button. You know, there's so much going on in my life. And the reason that I'm drinking and using this way is because of the stress and because of the magnitude of this situation. So I went, I stayed sober for a year. I didn't do the things, you know, I, I didn't do the steps. I didn't start to meditate. I, I didn't go down the path in a real way. And, you know, then um, I got arrested by the feds and I started drinking and using again because I hadn't, I hadn't approached the inner, the, the real problem. And so this second time when I went to rehab, I knew it was not circumstantial. I was, I was on a high in my life. You know, this movie's about to come out about my life. Um, I had put things back together. There was no reason I had to, to check out. Um, and so I knew, I knew it was real deal. And someone said something to me in that rehab that really finally helped me to understand. He said, drugs and alcohol aren't your problem. They're your solution. You know, your problem is inside. Your problem is the way you think, the way you relate to the world, the way you process emotions. And going back, that was the damn truth, you know? From the time I was a little kid, um, I felt really deeply and I wanted to escape the here and now and criticism just leveled me and, you know, all these things, this this inner processing um, that I, I think is really relatable and not doesn't have uh, fidelity to just alcohol and, and alcoholism and addiction. I think this is part of the human condition, but my solution to that was to drink and to use. And so that just hit me. That was a revelation to me. And that led me down this path of, okay, obviously I need to put down the drink and the drug, but that's just the beginning. The, the real journey is how do I fix the inside? I love that you mentioned how it was also like an escape from the here and now. And you talked about it even from your childhood. Tell us a little bit about your childhood, because I know, you know, around the age of 12, I believe, where you had a skiing incident, you hurt your back and you were out. Did the, did the drug start then? Because I would imagine a back injury. I'm, I want all the things. I don't want to feel any of the pain. <laughs> Is that where it started or were you, were you meditating your way, you know, at the age of... <laughs> um, I did have a very serious surgery at 12 years old. It was, a, it was basically a spinal reconstruction surgery. They did give me all the things. I was on the self-pump morphine um, drip. And who knows, maybe that, maybe those seeds were planted. I don't remember um, necessarily enjoying the way that I felt. Uh, on those substances, but who knows, maybe those seeds were planted. Um, and what kept me away from heavy usage of drugs and alcohol in high school and, and the early years of college was that I was a professional athlete, you know, so, um, I didn't even drink on my 21st birthday. Um, but you know, just to go back, um, I can't, I come from this really high achieving family. Um, my youngest brother, is an athletic phenom. He was number one in the world at 18, um, three-time world champion in mobile skiing, two-time Olympian, went into both Olympics being number one in the world. 
uh, decided that he was going to retire from skiing, went to the NFL combine and got drafted fifth round of the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> and my middle brother, uh, you know, was like beating my dad in chess at like four years old, maybe not four, but young and went on, you know, he's a, a he's a professor at Harvard and a cardiothoracic surgeon at Massachusetts general. So these, these two just had this very, um, their skill set presented really early and they were getting all this, you know, sort of like attention for this. And I just felt like I was in a, in a nuclear winter, you know, I, I wasn't getting that. And, and I cared deeply, you know, I think, um, I think some kids are more, uh, sort of come into the world a bit more resilient and are able to process that in a different way. But I process that in the way of like, I need to do something that matters in this world or I don't matter, you know? Um, and I just, you know, skiing was the first place I applied that to. And, um, you know, I had that back surgery and it definitely affected my ability to go as far as I wanted to go. And then I had that crash at the Olympic qualifiers. And, and so you can imagine, and I had been a really serious student too. Um, but you can imagine when I retired from skiing and gave up that dream of the Olympics, um, which was wholly tied to this, this, this need inside of me to prove something to the world, to, to have a seat at this table. And I went to LA and, you know, went to this poker game where I had access to some of the world's richest, most powerful people and, and, you know, all this information and everything. You can imagine how primed I was for like a rebellion, you know, because <laughs> my plan hadn't worked. My plan failed. I wasn't going to the Olympics, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, I was ready, <laughs> but, um, you know, so, so that's kind of, th those are part of the preconditions of, of, um, I think, you know, the things that led, that led me to drugs and alcohol, but I really do buy into this, that this, this thesis that it's a disease, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an irregularity in the mind um, and needs to be treated as such. And, you know, if you, if you ever sit in an AA meeting or an NA meeting, it's not a homogeneous crowd, you know, you've got the lawyers and the doctors and, um, you know, the, the, the sex workers and the people who haven't, you know, like it's across the board. Um, it's people from all walks of life. You know, one of the things I love about what you said earlier is that the image that we are often portrayed of people who are uh, struggling with alcohol um, is, is that they're homeless or, you know, they look a certain way or they're from a certain right. demographic. And I think it prevents a lot of people from seeking help because they go, For well, sure. I don't look like that. So it must not be right. that bad until... Like you said, you're getting beat up by the Russian mafia and, you know, the, the FBI, you're seizing all your assets. <laughs> but, we you know, uh. <laughs> one of the things I heard you saying, Molly, is, um, you know, you talked about the, the need for attention early on. Your brothers were getting all this attention. You felt like, how do I get the attention? How do I get a seat at the table? And you, in some way, created your own table with, with the with the poker game. I did. Yeah. What was that attention 
did you not feel like you were getting the attention from your parents, like that unconditional love? Like, I don't have, I don't have to compete with my brothers. Like my parents will love me anyway. Or was there a different message growing up? You know, you have to be real careful because memory can be extraordinarily unreliable. Um, I think it was probably a combination of both. I think that the way that I was constituted, the way that I was wired was that I was going to look at what was going on with my brothers and want that and need that because I don't think I had a whole lot of self-worth inside. Um, I think that's how I came into the world. I, I don't think it's something my parents did to me. Um, does society have something to do with it? Damn sure it does. (laughs) But I think that's how I came into the world. And, um, and then my dad, yeah, man, he got excited when his son returned a pass for 80 yards the first time he touched the ball at the University of Colorado, or when, you know, Jordan became, you know, like started his residency at Massachusetts General. Yes, these things were exciting to him. Um, and I don't think that's his fault, you know? Uh, my dad, like, promoted excellence. My mom promoted kindness, integrity, doing the right thing. And my dad promoted excellence. And so this is how I was socialized. Um, and I just wasn't, I wasn't going to give up until I got that thing that I thought would fix the inside. And what I found is making millions of dollars, um, being at the pinnacle of the sort of like LA and New York and celebrity and, and uh, having power over powerful people and even writing a bestseller and having a movie made, none of that did it. None of that fixed what was, what was broken inside, none of it. It was like this momentary sort of flush of dopamine and, and you feel excited and, and, and then it goes away and you're just chasing the dragon, you know? So, um, but, I, but I, thought that, I thought that was the answer. The, the external rewards, uh, when, when yeah. you said the source was something internal, when you right. earlier, you talked about, you know, the first time you went to rehab, you know, you didn't, you didn't go through all the steps. You tried to skip steps and just thought you'd be good. And, and because you yeah. were, you thought it was circumstantial. I'm so thankful that you used that word circumstantial. Um, yeah. what was the hardest step for you out of those 12 steps? Or, or oh, they, sure. do they all feel the same? No, no. The, the, the hardest step for me was step one. It was this admission that I was powerless um, because I had prided myself on being powerful. But when I looked at it under a microscope, you know, when I looked at it, and I have this incredible sponsor. She's like 25 years sober, this like little Puerto Rican woman from the Bronx who is like, on, on good days, like when you're doing well, she's, you know, she's mother Teresa, but like, she'll call you on her her shit and become like Tony Montana real fast. And, you know, I I remember like sitting down with her and telling her my whole story when I came in to get sober, thinking she was going to be so impressed, you know, (laughs) and like, and be, and, and respond in this way that was like, oh my God, like you've been so powerful. And she was like, so, uh, lack of power is your problem. And I'm like, what? you know? And then we reviewed the data for it. Um, have you been able to have healthy relationships? Nope. 
Um, have you stayed with people th- th- in a toxic relationship because you needed that like love or whatever? Yep. Um, have you been able to drink moderately? No, haven't been able to do that. Have you been able to walk away from situations that don't serve you if you're getting pleasure from it? No, over and over and over this, this powerlessness um, that I had never recognized before. And, you know, she's like, the good news is, is that there's a solution here, you know, and there is a way to tap into power that that gives you once again, dignity and agency, or maybe for the first time. When you say agency, can, can you speak more about that? Because it's a word that people don't use very often. And it's something (laughs) I'm just now hearing from different sources. So I feel like the universe is trying to tell me something. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Agency is, is having a measure of control or a measure of uh, ability to manage your own life and your own reactions. Um, I was a slave to things that brought me pleasure and I was uh, terrified of things that, that, that brought me pain. And so I just chased, uh, you know, like, I remember like before I would go out to be in a social situation, I would not, you know, I would have already had like three or four shots to make it, to make it okay to like get rid of the um, social anxiety, the feeling apart from uh, to stop comparing myself manically to every other woman in the room. You know, I I really, I, I depended on these substances and these, these situations to make life livable. Um, and it wasn't until I got sober and started doing work on that, that I started to find some freedom, you know, and, and, and life became, uh, you know, not just livable, but great. It's a process. Um, if I would have known that the result of the 12 steps and doing this work was that you, you change that part of you that's broken, that's in pain, and and you start to learn how to uncurl those stories. I would have done this a long time ago. I thought getting sober meant, here's the catastrophe of your personality and how you relate to the world. Here's your solution. Here's here's the thing that like makes it livable. We're gonna take this away and you're left with this. That's what I thought it was. And, you know, I, I just, I, you know, I, I just thought like, this is the way I am and this is how I, this is what I need to navigate the world. The like when I think about 12 steps and weight loss, the losing weight is easy for most people. Uh, 12 steps. I'm not going to say is easy. Like you said, the first step is the hardest. After the 12 steps, after we lose weight, after we hit our goal weight, the maintenance becomes the next set of challenges, right? Okay, yeah. now that we've gone through this whole process, how do I maintain this sobriety? What are you doing? I heard you mention meditation earlier. What's part of your maintenance of for sobriety? Yeah, great question and huge question. Um, and I just want to, you know, establish a little a little caveat. In the beginning, I said it's you know I, I compared it to losing weight or whatever, and there is. A, food addiction and it is 
gnarly and I have dealt with it. And so that's a different situation than somebody who's just like trying to lose a couple of pounds. So I just want to establish that, that I'm not disregarding that as, as a very painful thing to struggle with and something I relate to, um, and have struggled with, but anyway, um, so my maintenance program is incredibly important and it's never ending. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't, when I say that it sounds like a bummer, but it's not, you know, the spiritual path is fascinating and I have a very practical take to the spiritual path, you know? Um, but, and still it's, it's just, it's very fascinating and, and it's almost, I mean, it's so alluring because all of a sudden you start to understand these things and you start to be able to solve these things. So, um, the first thing that I needed to really understand about myself is that, um, you know, my, my sponsor was like, you didn't have a drinking problem. You had a thinking problem. And that's true. I drank because I couldn't handle the thoughts in my head. I couldn't handle the thoughts and the emotions. Um, I had what was an a hundred percent identification with the thoughts and the emotions in my head. Um, and in order to try to find some sanity and in order to start to fix this thinking problem, to learn how to stop identifying a hundred percent with the thoughts in my head and the emotions. And I know that that sounds kind of like crazy for someone who has never thought about it that way, but I'll never forget. I, I, I read this book called the untethered soul. I don't know if you've read it, but it's, it's excellent. Yeah. Most of us have. Right. Um, and it's, and there was this line in it. It said, you are not the voice in your head. You're the one that hears it. And that was just like, for me, you know, cause it's true. There is an entity of your being, whether it's, uh, some, some level of consciousness or some secret area in the brain. I don't know. My husband's a neuroscientist, but, um, but there is a, a part of your, your being that is observing that voice. And if that voice was like mine, which is like, you're never good enough. You're never pretty enough. You're not, you know, you're never skinny enough, whatever. Um, you don't want it. You don't want that to be your truth. You know, that needs to be re-narrated. So in this book that said, you aren't the one that he, you aren't the voice in your head. You're the one that hears it. Michael Singer, the author goes on to start to identify how we unwind from full identification with that, that voice and the emotions put forth that that voice brings. And every, on everyone that, everyone's list is meditation, you know, because meditation teaches us to observe the thoughts and to detach from them and to stop taking them as gospel, you know, as the truth. And meditation was, you know, I kept reading it over and over that that was part of the solution to this problem or, you know, and I was like, so mad. Cause I'm like, I can't meditate. You know, <laughs> like I can't sit with the thoughts in my head for one second, let alone 20 minutes. Like this is bullshit. I can't do this. You know, this is like the, the, the epicenter of my sickness. And so I started really small. Um, and I, and I just focused on breath and breath work is really incredible. Um, 
It's really incredible all on its own, but it's an incredible way to get into meditation. And I just focused on my breath, on the in-breath and the out-breath. And when the thoughts would come, I'd refocus on the breath. And I did that for the first day for 30 seconds. That's it. That's all I could do. The next day I built up to a minute and I started building this practice of meditation, which I still do today. Uh, and, and, and I started to have profound changes. Um, after about six to eight weeks, I started noticing inc incredibly profound changes. Um, my insomnia went away. Um, I used to be, this is going to ruin my reputation because everyone thinks I'm like brave and fearless and stuff, but I used to be terrified of flying on an airplane. Like I did it all the time, but I was terrified. Um, and when the turbulence would start, I was a hundred percent sure I was dying and it was a 10 out of 10 anxiety. And, um, with meditation, I'm, I, I don't, you know, it, it took a while, but I, I don't even, it doesn't register at all to me anymore. Um, I, I lived with constant anxiety my whole life. Um, and that is, has gone from a 12 out of 10 to a one. Um, and it's, and talk about agency. If you start to be the master of your mind, if you start to pick and choose what you focus on and what you decide to override, it corresponds to everything, to relationships, to procrastination, to anxiety, to depression. I mean, this is, for me, this is the biggest power tool that's available to us as human beings. Um, so meditation is a, is a huge part of that. I wake up, you know, every day and meditate. Um, I do 20 minutes. I don't, I don't feel the need to do more than that. Um, I see great results with that. Um, I have to put exercise in there. Uh, that gets a little of the crazy out, you know, and gets the, the legal feel good drugs of endorphins. Um, I, do gratitude uh, lists because um, my brain, it's really easy for my brain to focus on the negative and um, doing a gratitude list can really help retrain my mind in that way. Um, I do, I, I sponsor women both uh, in, in the program and I also mentor young women in business so I try to make sure that every day I, I am doing something that's service oriented, that's giving of myself because um, I can get real selfish <laughs> you know? and, and uh, giving back is a way and, and the more selfish I get, the more miserable I am. So um, making that a part of my day. And, and then at night um, I do an inventory. I look at my day, I look at how I showed up. Um, and I look at things like, was I selfish today or was I practicing being unselfish? Was I um, letting fear own me or was I, you know, sort of, uh, just, it, was I choosing courage? Um, uh, you know, was I, do I have any resentments that I need to kind of like let go of? Um, and then also my personal goals. Uh, you know, I'm writing a second book right now. So the question at the, at the inventory is, did I, did I spend, uh, you know, the, the two hours working today or did I, um, 
you know, pretend to like read something, you know, like what, whatever your, whatever your matrix of goals look like. Um, I think it's important to check in at night. So, and then I go to a meeting every day, pretty much still. And that, and they're on zoom. So it's super easy. Uh, I, I love that. There's so much to unpack there. Um, with the meditation, just uh, one last question to drill down because there's so many people who struggle with this. I love one that yeah. you mentioned. You built it up as a practice. You started with 30 seconds and then you slowly built up to 20 minutes. Because I think a lot of times people read an article or they there's a YouTube or Instagram and they think they could just dive right into it. And then, you know, they stick with it for three days and then they go, I can't do 20 minutes every day and they give up. So I love that you emphasize the building up of your practice over time. How did you space that out? Did you you do like 30 seconds a a day for a week or were you like, I'm going to add five seconds a day? Like, how did you, because I I, I know you're a planner, you got a spreadsheet. What what was your strategy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what was your strategy? You remind me of my girlfriend so much. Like with this, like she puts everything <laughs> in a spreadsheet. Uh, <laughs> what was your strategy for building up the meditation practice? <laughs> my friends baked me a, a, like a, a spreadsheet cake for my birthday. <laughs> like, oh, this is who I am now in the world. I'm Excel girl. Right. Um, you know, with this, I kind of, um, I, 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 I let, and this is very uncharacteristic for me. I chose based on how it felt in the beginning. So after I did 30 seconds, you know, we get like that dopamine rush for showing up and doing something. Um, and I had that and it wasn't hard, you know, so that's the formula I was looking for. So the next day I was like, I can do a minute, you know? Um, and then, um, when I got to three minutes, that felt more hard than the like sort of rush of feel good of showing up. So I, I, I sat there for, for a couple of days, you know, I just did the three minutes for a couple of days until that didn't feel as hard. And then, um, you know, I went up to five minutes and I stayed at five minutes for a while and I kept building. It shouldn't feel punitive. You know what I mean? It shouldn't feel like, um, this is something I have to do and, because, you know, it's, it's just another one of those things that I have to do that I don't want to do. Um, I mean, that's how it's going to feel certain days, but this is something that is better if you're not forcing it, you know? I Um, mean, like that's for anything, right? I mean, you you want to enjoy it and, and build up to it and, and, and see how it feels for you day to day. And increase the probability that you're going to sustain it, you know? That's, that's the formula. Yeah. You, you know, and, and that part of that formula you mentioned was exercise also. And it is a reason why in yoga, like there's the movement and then the meditation, because I find mm-hmm. that after movement, the meditation is almost like, thank God I'm done with the movement part. You know, like yeah. I can sit here and relax. So uh, right. anybody out there struggling with the meditation part, try get a little movement, whether that's going for a walk. Are you yoga Pilates? I mean, what's, what's got you with those toned arms over there? <laughs> um, so I love yoga. Um, and, and this is also what I love about yoga and, and 
also, I forgot to mention that I, I do have a, like a breathwork practice, which sounds fancier and cooler than it is. I, I basically, you know, I read this book, James Nestor, it's about breath. Um, and, uh, he makes this compelling case that we don't breathe right. And that, um, so much of health is, is connected to how well we breathe and also, and I like this cause I like the hacks also that when you learn how to, when you learn how to use your breath, you can hack into your nervous system. So that's super helpful for me. Um, if I'm going on stage to speak to 10,000 people, or if I'm, I'm walking into a meeting with someone that I really want to do business with, but I want to, I want to give nothing away, you know? And so learning how to use your breath in these ways is really cool. And also, you know, I, I've lived in some level of chronic pain since my, my back surgery and then skiing moguls didn't help. And, and so what I, you know, what I've also found about doing some breath work is that it, it, it has raised tension in my body and reduced the pain a lot. So I'm, I'm really like super, um, all for breath work. And I think you can learn it in yoga. Um, a lot of people do power yoga and it's all about like, you know, moving your body, but if you can incorporate also, if you can use the breath to move your body and, and learn about your breath through, through yoga, it's really incredible. And it's something you can take off the mat and apply in really, you know, really cool, cool ways. Like the Navy SEALs have a, have a breathing exercise they do before they go into, you know, kill Osama bin Laden or whatever, <laughs> whatever they do. Um, you know, professional athletes, like everyone, this is not a meditation, breath work, yoga. These are not woo woo things, you know, these are real fundamental, uh, practices that are backed by science and, and incredibly results driven. Um, and so I think it's worth an ex exploration. Um, also headspace is a great app for learning how to meditate. And, and um, but I, I love, yeah, I love yoga and, and I also do Pilates. My friend, um, Melissa Woods has a great program, Melissa Woods health, um, where she has these, you know, shorter, but like super impactful Pilates and yoga movements, um, that, you know, are also kind of good, like that she teaches about breath and about softening into it and all that stuff. Yeah, the breath work is is massive. So many people are breathing into their their chest and bringing their shoulders yeah. up to their ears. And uh, <laughs> my acupuncturist actually gave me that book, Breath, and it's it's helped me tremendously. Exactly. Uh, it is. Um, you talked about taking an inventory at the end of your day, and you know I truly believe that the quality of your life is based on the quality of the the questions that you're asking yourself. Do your questions yeah. change? Because I noticed, you know, one of your questions is, did I spend two hours working today? Or, you know, can you, can you give us the exhaustive list of, of, your, of your inventory questions or whatever you feel comfortable sharing with us for others out there who might be struggling with, you know, creating an inventory list of their own? Yeah. Um, so in a 12-step program that the, the inventory in, in that capacity consists of looking at resentments, fear, dishonesty, and selfishness. And I think that that's a pretty good baseline for anyone. 
Um, we know that resentments make us really sick. Uh, we know that fear is really prevalent in most people and certainly something to be looked at, uh, in, especially in terms of like, where is fear driving your decision-making process? Um, selfishness is another one, you know, in, in this world of social media and content creation and, um, you know, we've, we've become kind of self-absorbed and I don't mean that in any kind of critical way, but a lot of us, our businesses are based on, uh, you know, promoting our brand. Um, and I think it's really important to, to also take a step back from that and say, okay, but how am I connecting with other people or, or how am I supporting other people? Um, I think that that's a real, I've found that's a really important balance for me to strike. Um, and then, um, dishonesty, you know, that's one that I don't reckon with anymore that much anymore. Um, because I'm not trying to hide how much I'm drinking or using or the fact that I'm running an illegal poker game or whatever, <laughs> whatever the situation is. Um, but you know, if that's always a good one to look at. And then for me, you know, depends like it, I have a category in my inventory of, of looking at my work aspirations. Um, most of the time when I'm working on something, it is, it requires me to be self-motivated. You know, I'm, I'm writing a book, I'm developing technology. I'm not doing it with a bunch of other people. So I have to hold myself accountable. Um, and so, you know, making those goals in the beginning of the day and checking in with myself to make sure that I, that I stuck to it and that I was disciplined and didn't like turn on the TV and binge Netflix instead um, is important. And, and then, you know, this more, there's more work always to be done right now. Um, you know, my husband and I are ready to start a family and we want to start pursuing that in June. And something that came up has come up for me so much is how much I have let um, this concept of like being the right weight and looking the right way, all this vanity stuff um, hold a lot of space in my mind. And, um, I don't want to pass that on to, to a daughter, you know, for a son. And I want to be able to enjoy pregnancy and not care about what it says on the scale or, or, you know, just be, be grateful that I'm producing life. And I'm going to be really honest. That's hard for me. You know, my whole life, um, I have been programmed to try to look pretty. And so, that's an area of work that, that I'm doing right now is uncurling those stories and redefining what it means to, to be in this body and to, you know, say effort to the, the weight that's gained. You know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not dismissing health. I'm dismissing the, the over-identification with, you know, the, the beauty or lack thereof of, of, of the body and the, and the face. And, you know, I, it's time for me to grow up in that way. And that's hard. So, that's something that I look at in inventory is, you know, how well am I starting to re-narrate those ideas in my head? Um, and uh, so, you know, it just depends. Like, I think it's, I, I think I always want to be in some state of growth. Um, I stagnated for a long time spiritually and emotionally because I was, you know, I was escaping from it all through, through drugs and alcohol and, and 
now I know that if I'm in a constant state of growth, then, um, then I'm, then I'm keeping myself away. If I'm enlarging my spiritual life, if I'm enlarging this sort of, uh, examination of my mind and everything that's going on, if I'm sitting with it and facing it and then trying to find a process for it, then, you know, I'm, I'm no, I'm not anywhere near a drink or a drug. And, and I keep, you know, and, and I, and I want to enjoy my life, you know, like I don't want to be miserable. So that's, that's the answer to that. Yeah, it's it's a tough balance when, you know, it's been drilled into us what enjoying life means, you know, usually it's associated with achievement, accomplishment, and getting things done. And, you know, sometimes you just... You, you Parting in Positano. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the whole nine yards. Yeah, it's it's a lot to unlearn. And, and sometimes, and, and to also recognize there is room for, uh, you know, to uh, Netflix and chill, right? Like that's part of, oh, sure. of just kicking your feet up. And especially if you get, you, you know, you're having kids now, it, it's like Coco Melon, here we come. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you talked also, about. Oh. Yeah. No, I, I also want to throw in that part of my, um, maintenance program and part of my day I prioritize sleep now the days of like you know hustle hard never sleep never that that is over I'm done with that (laughs) it didn't work that well anyway sleep is really important it's really good for your brain it turns out (laughs) (laughs) I I mean you talk about you know performance enhancing drugs uh sleep Mm -hmm. definitely should be at the top of that list do you have a I have a whole sleep protocol I have to go through. Do you have a sleep uh, routine or protocol that you go through? Um, I'm pretty, I, I'm not great with that. And you know, I think they call it like your sleep hygiene score or whatever. You know, I, I don't like, I, I have blue light in my eyes. I do. Um, I have a great mattress, really good mattress, which has made a huge difference. It's called a purple. And that for me, I mean, I have a bad back and neck. So like, it's really important. Um, and you know, the, I, I make sure I try to have the room as black as possible. And, uh, I, yeah, I mean, I try to go to sleep around the same time and wake up around the same time, but the rest of it, I'm terrible at, (laughs) like, I don't do anything to like chill out before bed, but I do have this thing. It's called a whoop. You know, do you know these things? Yeah. So it, it looks at, it tracks your, how much REM you're getting, how much deep sleep you're getting, what your recovery is like. And all, all those metrics are good. So, you know, if, if one of those metrics isn't good, I know I need to make some changes. Yeah. I just spent $2,300 on a a mouth guard after I read breath because I I realized I have sleep apnea and, and he talks about how our jaws affect how we breathe. And so I get this $2,300 mouth guard, I put it in and sleep apnea gone. It, it, I couldn't believe it. Um, well, that's so, awesome. But what the hell is cost $2,300 about a mouth guard? <laughs> Isn't that, that those things you like just put in boiling water? Well, I mean, what, how's it so fancy? What does it do? It, 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 like when he showed me the mouth guard, right? It looks like a retainer. 
And then yeah. he, he told me the price. I was like, you, you got to be kidding. Like uh, I played football. Like those things are $10 right. <laughs> at, at, at right. the most. And, and, but you know, they, 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 they add on all these, like, um, uh, these fancy words we have to titrate the, the, the mouth guard and <laughs> we have to take Such the 3d. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, it works and yeah. it works so incredibly well that when we talk, even when we talk about weight loss and we talk about cravings and smoking and addiction, yeah. I didn't realize how much of my food addiction was linked to my sleep apnea and not getting, cause yeah. you're not getting quality sleep. I was waking up a thousand times in the middle of the night and not realizing it though. And so, yeah. uh, and and then the the effect that it has on your heart, you know, if you're not sleeping, your body's not able to recover, et cetera, et cetera. So I go twenty three hundred dollars for me to like stabilize my mood, cut my carb cravings, and oh, sure. feel more focused. I, I I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, that's money well spent. Okay, all right, I'm on board with the twenty three hundred dollar <laughs> mouth guard now. I'm a fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to backtrack a little bit, you, you know, cause we talked about like the different diffusions and the spinal injuries. And you talked about how you have a bed, the purple bed to help you, you know, sleep yeah. better and it helps your back. And we talked about the, the woo woo stuff. That's not really woo woo. It's, it really is effective in terms of yoga. What about like acupuncture yeah. massage? Like what are those other things you're doing to mediate the or manage the pain outside of uh, any medication? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm going to kind of go on a tangent, but I promise it's answering your question. So, um, and I think this brings us to like the nutrition uh, sort of category, which I think is incredibly important. So um, when I was 36, I froze eggs. Um, and, and I know that a lot of, uh, there's a lot of talk of that technology now. And, and I, I had a big, huge mess to sort out and I knew that, um, I wanted to have kids and, you know, I was nowhere near being equipped or ready for that. So I froze eggs and I, um, I was overconfident about them being effective, you know, the, them, the, the eggs being my insurance policy against time. And, you know, I didn't get all the facts and I didn't get all the information and I didn't freeze enough eggs and I probably didn't do it at the right place. And when I, when my husband and I met and married and finally became ready, I was 41 and I was ready to dial these eggs and be a mama, you know, thought I was going to have 11 babies or whatever, <laughs> 11 eggs, 11, whatever. Anyway, um, it didn't work. None of them survived, you know, um, one of them did, but it, it was a, it was a genetically abnormal embryo that would never have sufficed life, you know, never, um, um, been, been a, a life become a life. And so I'm in this position now and I went and then I, and then I went to this doctor and he did all these, you know, tests and he was like, it doesn't look good, you know, like you're, you're not very fertile anymore. And so before I went down, before I took that um, to heart, I was like, all right, you know, cause this is kind of my process when there's this problem um, to be solved. I, I'm first before, before I, before I 
agree that it's a problem before I let it determine my, my life, I'm going to do a ton of research, you know, and I'm going to do my own due diligence and see if there's things that can be done. Cause in my experience, there generally is. So I did everything that they recommended. I started on supplements. I went to acupuncture. I drank for almost two years, three times a day, these gnarly Chinese herbs that I'd have to brew. Um, I changed my diet. I got rid of all inflammatory foods, dairy, gluten, sugar, ate mostly plant-based. And when I went back for a checkup, I did this for like three months. When I went back for a checkup, my fertility had like multiplied by five times. And I was back into a normal range of fertility. Um, I am a huge believer in science. My husband is a scientist. My, my brother is a doctor. My dad is a doctor. I, I also, but I think that when you're doing due diligence around this stuff, it's important to be well-rounded, you know, look at it from all these different angles. Um, so that also helped a lot with, with pain, getting rid of those inflammatory foods. Um, and, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not perfect with it now. Like I have my days where I eat pasta and a cupcake, but it's, you know, it's more in moderation and I'm, I'm sold. I'm sold on food is the medicine and nutrition is important. And, you know, I lived a large, I lived decades of my life being pretty unhealthy and I'm pretty committed now. And I've also seen results. I love that. Um, and, you know, you talked about infertility and having kids and Earlier, you talked yep. about things you didn't want to pass down to your children. What is, <laughs> so, <laughs> what's something that you do want to pass down to your children that you feel like maybe wasn't there for you as a child? Um, I want to teach my kids to deal with things as they come up, you know, to not, to not live in this sort of unconscious state of, you know, we just got to get through. Right. So, um, I, I am, if I have to pay these kids to meditate, I'll pay them. <laughs> that can be like part of their chores. Um, because, and I, and I want to teach them how to process difficult emotions. I want to teach them that, look, I'm super happy that I was pushed as a kid and that I was held to my word and required to be accountable um, and, you know, pushed to, push to do, like, to be in sports or school or whatever it is. Like, I'm really happy that I learned how to get uncomfortable and, and develop discipline. And that's something I'll definitely pass down. But if there's something that's coming up for my kids, you know, like it came up for me. Um, I want to, I want to, I want them to know that there's a difference between discipline and constructive suffering and pain, you know, and I want to be able to get ahead of these things and, and teach them how to process these things because, you know, even being able to process emotions is, is a, is a way to combat procrastination. Like there's just not a ton of emotional education 
And there's not a ton of um, these protocols to be able to recognize what's going on in the head and, and get some elevation on it and, and, and to, to sort of create that agency that we were talking about. Yeah, you said you're working on a, a new book. Is that what the, the new book is going to address? And in what ways? I'm sure you can't share all the things, but uh, what can we expect from the new book? <laughs> um, well, if I ever finish it, here's what it's going to be about. <laughs> it's actually just, um, it picks up where the, where the last book left off. I had to, man, I had no time to process before I started writing this book. The first book it was like train wreck happened two weeks later. I was, I was writing because I, I saw that as my, as my way out. Um, and you know, I, 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 I stopped before the story had like resolved itself. So I hadn't even been sentenced, um, with the first book. So I pick up at sentencing and I talk about basically this, this sort of dual journey of putting your life back together on the outside and on the inside. So, you know, here I am 35 years old, millions of dollars in debt, convicted felon, network destroyed, and a drug addict and an alcoholic and suffering from depression and anxiety. How do you fix the, how do you put the outside together? How do you put the inside together? And it's, it's that journey, you know, it's trying to get a movie made in Hollywood when every powerful person there is trying to blackball it. Um, and also trying to figure out how to live in this world, um, with ease and comfort. I love that. And then there's also a, an app accompanying that book. Tell us a, a bit about the app and, and why that's so important. Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a way to, to make this journey m more fun and more um, community driven. Um, and so, you know, first and foremost, I want to build a compassionate community of people that support each other um, in, in various ways. And I want to do that online. Um, and and I also want to, and this is something that my husband and I are both working on. Um, and we, you know, want to also take all these tools of transformation that we've learned and, and put it into a more immersive experience um, that you can, that, that, that doesn't have to be the daily slog of like, oh my God, I have to wake up today and meditate and like eat my vegetables and drink my water and be nice to people and whatever it is, you know? I love it. And then uh, last two, I have two last questions. What's a question that uh, people don't generally ask you that, or a story that you have that you um, think would be relevant in helping somebody through their mental health journey? Um, yeah, well, you know, I think that, I think that there, I, I sort of touched on it before, but, you know, I'll never forget that moment when, um, <clears throat> when my producer called me and said, the movie's made, you know, I couldn't go to the set because it was in Canada and I was under probation and the state department had my passport. Um, and they had finished it and, and, you know, it was tough to get this movie made. No one wanted to make it. And then it was at Sony and then Kim Jong-un hacked Sony's database and 
the chairwoman, Amy Pascal, had to step down because her emails were revealed. And then the new chairperson didn't really want this. So it was like this whole journey, you know? And I, and I just, I was barely holding it together. I was taking, I couldn't wake up without a handful of pills. I couldn't, you know, it was all day long pills, drinking sometime, you know, like, um, and I was just saying like, I, I just need to get to this finish line. You know, I just need to get to this finish line. Like my, I just need to get through it. Um, I'm doing my 200 hours of community start, you know, it was just like, it was hard. I, I was just hanging on by a thread. And then m- the producer of the movie called me and he was like, it's done. I just saw it. And it's, and it's, it's extraordinary, you know? And then he said, um, well, we're going to send the bank wire this big number that I had negotiated for the, for the price of my life rights, you know? So once again, for the first time since 2011, I was going to have money again. Um, and you know, I had some pretty indisputable evidence that I had a seat at the table. Aaron Sorkin had just made a movie about my life and I waited to be okay. You know, I waited for that all to sink in, to have money again, to, um, have this bright future again. And I waited for that to fix everything and it didn't, you know, and I still couldn't get through the day without pills or at least obsessing about it, you know? And, and so it was that moment that I was like, all my ideas have been wrong or at least I'm, I'm missing a lot of information. And you know, there was like a part of me that was like, don't get sober before the premiere of your movie. Like (laughs) what's wrong with you? You know, (laughs) like drink the champagne, like you take that victory lap. (laughs) But I couldn't do it anymore. And there were, there was a million reasons not to get sober, you know, or to wait another day, but something inside of me, or maybe the universe just just pushed me there. And it was the best choice I have ever made. And it was not a best-selling novel. It was not an Oscar-nominated movie that saved me. It was getting honest with myself. And whether that means seeking help for drugs, alcohol, suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, like decrease your pain tolerance. If you're in that much pain, it's not supposed to be that way, you know? And, and it's never going to be the right time and it's never going to feel easy, but just do it. Swallow the pride, ask for help. Um, and if that first like person doesn't help you ask again, you know, it's, it's, sometimes we forget like life isn't supposed to be that painful. Um, so, you know, (laughs) Just stop thinking of all the reasons that you shouldn't do it today and just do it. Reach out. Uh, I really appreciate that. And then last question, I ask this of all my guests, uh, because I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Yeah. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Molly? That's a big question. That's a great question. It's a powerful question. Um, I would say you can't see it right now. 
you know, you can't see that there is a way out because you're so in it, but listen to my words and know that I have been there um, and that there is a way out and there is a, there is a second chapter for you. Uh, and give that a chance, you know, be, be ready to do it someone else's way and be ready to, um, surrender and get the help you need. And when it, when you're in it, just trust the process, you know, it, it, it takes, it takes a minute to get well, but it's so worthwhile. And I truly believe that, that everyone can, can get there, you know? Um, and we need you here, you know, because when you go through something like that and you have that dark night of the soul and you come out the other side, you can help so many people. Molly Bloom, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call in the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK. If you want one-on-one coaching, go to thrivewithleo.com. Uh, let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Molly Bloom. Thank you so much. And thank you for doing this. It's, it's really incredible um, work you're doing.